0: My name is Dean McCubrey, and this podcast, Z Alpha, looks ahead and examines the impact of emerging technology on our children. Hello and welcome to another episode of Z Alpha. This is the pod in which we take a look at the emerging technologies that are affecting both Generation Z and the pre teens, Generation Alpha. And what does this mean for their world? And what does it mean for society in general in terms of how we're helping them to cope with this new? explosive technology. And today I have Dr. David Rosenstein. He's a neuroscientist. He's a cognitive behavioral therapist. He's actually a professional archer as well. Well, maybe he says he's not a professional archer, but that's among many of his skills. I've known David for, oh, David must be nearly a decade. This is a man that I both really genuinely like and I really respect from the intersection of bringing neuroscience into cognitive behavioral therapy and helping specifically helping adolescents and preteens. And of course, he does adults as well. But the work that he does with kids is absolutely phenomenal in enabling them to understand what's happening in the mind, why they have developed certain patterns of thought, and how to kind of unravel them and bring them towards a new journey, a new direction of thought, which in many cases can take kids' right from the edge. And I'm always very open. I've spoken to David myself when I've got myself into bad patterns of thought, and he's taken me back from the edge. And I really deem him to be somewhat of a lifesaver for many people. So David, welcome.
1: Thanks, Dean. It's great to be with you again.
0: Yeah, no, it's really good. And so I suppose let's jump in today. The one thing I wanted to say to everybody was, some people have said to me, what exactly is Gen Z and what is Gen Alpha? I don't have the exact dates on me. I should know them. But essentially, Gen Z are our teenagers and they actually go up to those who are in their early 20s and gen alpha are really by and large it's not perfect are the pre-teens okay so i have i run the full spectrum of pre-teens and teens in my household so i understand the impact of technology on them because i'm i'm witnessing it and of course i teach tens of thousands of kids as well each year so david tell me from your perspective why don't you briefly explain some of the work that you do with these generations and what it is you do specifically?
1: So just to start, uh, I'm not there yet. I have two of my own, not quite in those generations, but will be at some point. (laughs) Um, So anticipating that very much. I mean, just to start off with, I'd I'd like to say that I think where our young people are today, I mean, they're in a very different space, a very different mindset, having very different contextual, cultural, uh, psychosocial experiences than we ever had i think the way they see the world is in some ways quite uniquely different to how we do i mean they have this difference of freedom access to information which is massively different i mean i think it's shaping their intellect uh shaping their emotional experiences specifically to your question i'm a bit of a guide i am a behavioral therapist so I work collaboratively with young people, adults, as you said, and I give skills, strategies and try to guide you on your way. I mean, the kind of therapist that I am is that you only need me for a short bit of time and you can say, cheers, I'm on my way. I've got what I need. You've helped me enough. I think I'm good. And uh, specifically, I mean, I treat as a clinician when I'm in those shoes. A number of anxiety disorders i specialize in what's called the obsessive compulsive spectrum but i actually help young people with a whole lot of different life challenges i mean all those things can intersect with various curveballs and challenges life is going to throw us
0: yeah you know, that, that work with David specifically around what he was mentioning with regard to OCD. I mean, I had OCD when I was much younger and it didn't really ever go because I never really knew what it was un- until I met David. And OCD is incredibly layered. It has many different variances, although I know psychologically it seems that it's all under the banner of anxiety, but it has funny kind of, it, it morphs and changes into many different areas. And it's very difficult for people to see. And Unless somebody points that out to you, then you suddenly realize, hold on, this is to some degree a pattern of thought that I got myself into, um, and that can be precipitated by a number of different reasons. But just not knowing, somebody lifting or, or pulling that curtain back and explaining it to you, this is before they even start, start to offer you the therapy, just showing you. Mm-hmm. can be an utter game changer because you can think that there's something wrong with you. And, um, you know, I think that's amazing because I, I think a lot of people truly don't understand OCD. Would you Would
1: you say that, David? Absolutely. I mean, I think if, if you don't mind me saying in our generation, that was certainly the case. I think people did struggle to understand and do struggle to understand what OCD is. Um, on average, I mean, there was an American study. It's very dated now. It took individuals about seven years before they went for treatment. Uh, You know, people would live with OCD for a long time. And I think it's as you say, you know, I don't know what this is. And people are also quite embarrassed about it. They don't want to talk about it. They are afraid that they'd be judged, um, or a person's weak or not competent. And they don't have the language for it as well at times. Sometimes just providing the label and providing means in which to speak about it is in itself part of the therapy. Interestingly, these days I find young people with access to information are self-diagnosing in a sense, you know, they go online and they learn about these things. They come to me and they kind of have a, a bit of an inkling. They know what this is. They talk about it. And I think I'm seeing, and, I, and look, at this is anecdotal. I'm not sure it tracks actual, you know, an, an evidence base out there literature. I'd have to look at that. But I think with younger individuals, it appears to be possibly being diagnosed earlier. And I think it's because of their access to information. I think it's because of how they approach that um, as well. You know, they're curious. Yeah, I mean,
0: I mean, back in the day, I remember it felt like, well, first of all, you didn't know. Um, and you just thought you're really odd to have these habitual behaviors. Uh, and then actually, accidentally, I stumbled in when I was 16 to a Time magazine. And I was like, oh my God, this explains it. (laughs) But I didn't really do much about it. I just actually practiced some of the things that were in the article. And that kind of gave me quite a lot of reprieve. But that's why I say just knowing is so important. And if we go to your work, you know, this thing of being able to help kids that maybe are self-diagnosing to actually get professional support in understanding anything from self-harm, to anxiety, to uh, OCD, or whatever else they may be, is so important. So tell us about CBT. Tell us about cognitive behavioral therapy, because it really is an incredible key. But I think that parents don't fully understand what it is. And and it's almost like Mm. still a bit too much of a secret. So tell us about it.
1: So it's actually, it's an umbrella term for a number of, we call them evidence-based therapies. So we follow the scientific kind of uh, processes as well. We want to make sure that what we're doing works, that it can be subject to some level of rigor. It follows. I mean, you mentioned neuroscience, but also behavioral science and some of the other psychological work that's out there. That it follows that, and it's it's open to updating itself, to learning, changing its tools, to changing its approaches to assisting people with their mental health and their well-being. And there are many different kinds of uh, cognitive and uh, behavioral therapies. What's absolutely exciting is that there's a number of new emerging behavioral therapies that have come out. I mean, they're not that new, but the newer uh, sort of tools and approaches and thinking about emotions in the mind, only a couple of decades, kind of new. And they they are absolutely cutting edge and fantastic. It's a very practical therapy, uh, collaborative. I mean, the idea is to work with your client together. So I would bring my knowledge, skills, the tools and information about them, and the person brings their experience. We work as a team. We may sort of think about some goals that we want to achieve. A goal could be to look at what is sort of making my anxiety very high, and how is this anxiety affecting me, say, at school, or talking to friends, speaking up in front of a class, what we'd call sort of social anxiety. How do I approach this in a way that helps me to be more effective, that helps me to sort of not be avoidant or where I let this anxiety change my behavior in such a way that I, I kind of feel isolated and sad and that I'm not effective. And maybe the person thinks I'm stupid. Then that we call a cognition, a thought process. So cognitive behavioral therapy, that cognitive part is looking at beliefs and kind of the talk in our head. And behaviorally, it's pretty difficult to probably define just a couple of words, but it's, you know, changing the response. Uh, finding a number of tools and strategies to change, like how do I approach this? Is the way I, I'm approaching this the most effective way to do so? Is there something else I could do that may work better for me and better for me in terms of like the way I want to live my life, my values, my interests, the kind of person I want to be?
0: You know what's so interesting about that, and it's, it's something that I've, I've monitored in teaching schools in, in schools in over five years. It's actually really difficult for us to understand or even catch the thoughts that are there. Sometimes it's difficult for us to understand the behaviors that are a response of the thoughts. And it's then also difficult for us to stand the long-term consequences because we didn't really know neither the thoughts or the behaviors. So we develop a habit. We're not sure whether habit is here, what we're doing here and what the long-term consequences until it comes around, and it starts crippling us. And I remember you teaching me that. I think it, you mentioned the ABC or, or something. I remember you talking to me about just being able to start to talk to yourself and to question what the feeling is, is the beginning of the game change. Do you want to try and explain that a little bit more? Like, how do you do that? So l- let's imagine for the listeners either a teacher or a counselor or a parent has a child that's battling with something. So they're emotionally or they're thinking something. What what can we first say to them? Like, they don't know. The parent or the teacher is not necessarily versed in CBT. What is it that we need to start to understand just at a base level to help these kids?
1: Great question. (laughs) I'm thinking where to start there. I mean, The ABC, we got triangles, we have all these little metaphors and ways of understanding like mind, behavior. Uh, We do like to separate stuff out. I mean, often we confuse various things. We confuse what we do and our behaviors with the way we feel. So when a person says they're angry, they sometimes describe what we'd call aggressive behavior. Like it's okay to be angry, but if you act on your anger, if you behave in a way that is angry behavior, aggression, that's not skillful, it's not effective, it probably doesn't work out well for you. So is there a way you can feel angry, but respond and act in a way that is useful to you? So with emotions, because this is a big thing, often, and we taught this in quite a big way, that our emotions are bad, some of our emotions are bad, and we shouldn't have them. So if we feel anxious, we should try not feel anxious, we must get the anxiety to go down or go away, Actually, a lot of people's problems are that they developing these strategies, uh, whether they're thinking strategies like kind of inside the head problem solving or avoidance behavioral strategies. I'm not going to go there or do that if it makes me anxious in a way to try and get their anxiety to go down. And this may sound radical to a lot of people. You don't have to have your anxiety to go down. So really, the target is the behavior, even when it comes to thinking, because you mentioned thinking like. We want to kind of have people understand like what you know the thoughts that arise we we will have thoughts that arise we will have uh we call them automatic thoughts uh, we have thoughts we don't like thinking's different thinking isn't thoughts, so you could think of thoughts as objects they're things you have in your head. thinking is a verb, it's what you do. it's like you walk, you can talk, you can think so thinking's action like action towards how do I feel you know and one of the things we do is we worry. So worry is active thinking. It's like problem solving. And often that is trying to worry away out of that discomfort you have, whether it's anxiety or something else. Like you try, "Mm, is this going to happen? What if this happens? And can I make this go away? I mean, the, the agenda there is really to try kind of feel okay and feel better. And a lot of modern behavioral therapy is it's okay to not feel okay. It's okay to allow yourself to be open to the discomfort, the anxiety. And that's part of why we have mindfulness coming into our field as well, because mindfulness is about being in touch with the present moment, non-judgmentally, with openness, so that you can then take actions and behaviors that are effectual for yourself. You know, they're more aligned with what is it that I really want for myself in this situation? How do I get things done? Like what kinds of Things can I do now that are in line with the kind of person I want to be, etc. We sometimes look at what's called values clarification. It's a way to help a person guide their behaviors. I mean, I hope that gives you an idea. Like, we're we not after the anxiety. You know, we're not after necessarily like we need to target it. It's a symptom, get rid of it. Things have changed quite a bit, actually.
0: Honestly, David, that is so important because that is the problem. I mean, if you think about – I'll give you an example that I know too well – is is within OCD, what you are trying to do is you're trying to create order to say – you know this – but you're trying to create order so you might touch something, you might wash your hands too much or whatever, because you feel that if you do it enough times, you've kind of put it in the right box and now nothing's going to happen. It's – you're going – it maybe i can control or outthink or outdo whatever it is that i'm worried about whereas the alternative and if anybody if any parents have kids out there that have certain behaviors or have certain thought patterns you actually wanting to acknowledge that is the thought pattern and then what happens next is there could be a behavior or more thoughts or more feelings. And then you actually have to kind of look at them. Now, when David's talking about values-based stuff, it's like, where do you want to be? You want to be in a place where you can feel resilient or where you can, you know, study really well and you, or you can go to a party. You know, that that's the values-based stuff. Like, is you know, this is who I want to be. And yet, just having these feelings or these thoughts is freaking me out. And now I want to go and escape, which is to some degree why yeah. I think a lot of kids also pick up phones. It's, it's let's just escape. It's much more interesting to go there. And so we're stopping um feeling and we're stopping the acknowledgement of the thoughts, which is then going to make it really difficult to be able to manage the anxiety, not get rid of it, see it, feel it, and then decide what to do next. And, um and, yeah, it it is definitely something. When people talk to me about kids with, with with this stuff, I talk to them about this thing. You're not trying to chase it away. You're trying to stop and look at it. So, in order to do that, like I'm going to ask you some questions about some solutions in a bit. But let's talk about mindfulness and its link, its importance in CBT. So, first of all, what is mindfulness? Okay, is it a, a crock of rubbish? that Western people go, oh, no, it's, that's not for me. You're not going to sit on a cushion. It's yoga. It's from the East, whatever people say. I've heard a lot of it. Some people said they don't want me to come into schools because I talk about mindfulness. They feel it's some type of religion. Um, tell me what is mindfulness and why is that so important in the beginnings of understanding
1: anxiety? Totally. I mean I think mindfulness and it's changed, but a while ago people were super skeptical. Still are. I mean, you're experiencing that now. I mean I still experience that. When I talk about mindfulness, I feel I have to qualify it for people, almost sort of help them to see it as not a religious thing. Or yeah. woo-woo. It's kinda of like out there. Yeah. Um so it's it look it, it comes from Eastern an Eastern place. It's it's derived from meditation practices or meditation technologies um whether people like that or not that just is the case it's it is fairly distilled down when we talk about mindfulness uh as a meditative practice and i'll explain that in a, just in a moment um what i mean it's distilled down it's it actually has stripped away a lot of the um sort of religious and uh i guess a person could say spiritual elements although that's a little debatable it's a practice it's a psychological practice um When a person is doing mindfulness, practicing mindfulness, they are developing their concentration and they're developing another skill. So concentration being one, improving their concentration, focused attention, and their aspects of metacognition, being able to observe their thoughts, observe their sensations, observe what happens in the mind, sort of be healthily detached from that. The practices involve often focused uh, or focusing the mind, focusing one's concentration on an object, so often the breath, sitting in a quiet place, keeping the body still, keeping the body upright, focused. I mean, we want people to be focused, not sort of lying down and sleeping. It's not about relaxing or being calm, although you'll probably, or hopefully you feel when you do it calm, not all the time, but that's not the intention. The intention is that you awake, that you're alert. And that you are in the present. And what the present means is you're focused on what is happening right now. That could be your mental activity. It could be your breathing. I mean, I have clients and and some people, when I talk to them about this, they're like, oh, well, so what? Okay, you're going to do this. How does it help me if I'm anxious or if I'm distressed? So I sit for 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day. I've got the rest of the day before me. i have going to have these stresses come up. Like, How does 10 or 20 minutes of sitting per day, just observing... What's going on in my head going to help me when I actually have to do stuff? Well, we have the stitching the parachute metaphor. You stitch the parachute so you can pull it when you need it, right? So meditation, you're stitching, you're stitching. Bam. Now you hit this. It, in that moment, you don't get, you don't have to get so drawn in by the experience you're having. Let's say you're having a bit of a increase in anxiety, um, feeling I don't know if a person feels a little bit panicky. I think you feel very panicky when you feel panicked. But it can help you to step into your body, step into the experience, and not default to a position of escape or control or or, or on things you can't control. And it's a super powerful skill. It's a super weapon. I mean, we um, use mindfulness, or mindfulness at least combines with a lot of our other strategies as a behavioral therapist. So you teach mindfulness and a person can learn to meditate. And there are other little skills you can kind of teach, little mindful moment techniques that a person can practice through the day. And then that can combine with um work on dealing with thoughts. So we often talk about reframing thoughts. So that's sort of looking at your thought processes in a different way. You know, you're catching a thought that's there and having another thought with a thought, thinking differently. When you have that thought. So you're not defaulting to your typical kind of habitual way of responding to the thought, like, oh, geez, there's that thought. Let me get rid of it. Oh, this is bad. Or is it going to happen? What if this happens? And going down that what if, which is worrying, basically, but that what if rabbit hole. Instead, you have mindfulness. You're applying this in-the-moment experience. You have this little step back, because now you're just observing. You can notice the thought. You can focus your mind. And then you can apply, hmm, I can let this thought be there or, "Mm, okay, so this thought is a product of my mind. My mind is giving it to me right now. I don't have to make it go away. Maybe it isn't true or it is, but it doesn't mean I have to try analyze it right now. So it gives you that space to apply, you know, an alternative approach to thinking about an alternative approach to responding. Super powerful.
0: It It is so powerful. And it's so I mean, my brother is a a mindfulness coach in Canada. That's why I've been doing it for about 10 years. And I've spoken with you about it extensively. And I know you're a big fan of it. It is a superpower. And it is so difficult to explain. I mean, just to recap where we are on the conversation, we've discussed CBT and essentially what it is. We've talked about the cognitive and the behavior. So essentially, what are the thoughts? You know, how am I acting? And what are the consequences of those actions? You'd mentioned anger and aggression is an excellent example. And then we discussed after that, you know, the importance is is that we can't always see what our thoughts are. We don't always catch our actions and therefore we wouldn't be able to catch what the long-term consequences of freaking out on people all the time, which could be being suspended from school or or developing, you know, like an even bigger anger or rage problem. And then we said after that, hold on, well, if you were able to catch some of those thoughts and if you were able to understand what those behaviors were, then you would be able to kind of catch them for a second. And this is the key, not try and get rid of them, to try and sit with them, to hold them, look at them, and you've just said, reframe them. Honestly, David, like this stuff, I mean, can you imagine in schools, and I know it's taught to a degree, but if CBT could get its way into schools, it would be so important because it's difficult to teach uh, a lot of this kind of, uh, you know, emotional and cognitive intelligence, this understanding of ourselves. It's funny that this stuff isn't in schools um, because, and now I'm going to get into some of this stuff, uh, you know, what we're seeing online is that everything is moving incredibly Quickly, you know, there's a lot of short form video. We're scrolling through hundreds of images. We're scrolling across many, many different types of platforms. So now we've got hundreds of images, tens of platforms that we're using. We're picking up our phone. I mean, hundreds of times in a day. I'm talking about both adults and children. And so what are we talking about there? We're talking that it's quite difficult to stop. It's quite difficult to see. It's even quite difficult to hear what's really happening. We may be uh, more exposed, but that doesn 't necessarily mean that we have the correct skills internally, right? What I want to ask you therefore, is you know what what, what are you seeing uh around kids online and anxiety just as an example, are there any links or correlations i 'm not expecting you to say there are there may not be um, i I suppose if we are so busy and if we 're busy escaping. You know, how does that play out with anxiety disorders?
1: Mm. I mean, I think this is uh, definitely an emerging emerging area and field. I mean, I don't think we quite know for sure. You know, well, we don't know for sure the kinds of impacts that um, technology and being on screens has on our young people's, a young person's, for example, the development of anxiety, maintenance of anxiety. I mean, there's some work, and I've seen this as well in practice, where um sometimes technology is used as like a stimming uh, mechanism. You know, it as you, as you mentioned earlier, it's sort of an escape. So I'm, I have like uncomfortable emotions now, or I'm struggling, and scrolling. There's sort of the scrolling, moving through images as a way to almost soothe oneself. You know, you, you kind of do it like escaping from whatever the difficult memory is or the thoughts that are sort of in a person's mind. And um is it good or bad? I you know, it depends. I guess, you know, it, it depends how that's used. I think it could be bad if that is the only default of the child, that's the only thing the child has. I, I, I don't think tech offers us of solutions as well, uh therapeutic solutions. It can be a place where, you know, young people, even I guess us as oldies are, if I can say that, <laughs> can turn to. I'm older to. than you, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <I> don't know. <laughs> you know, we turn to it. We turn to it to sort of um, we can turn to it. I mean, to to get help. I mean, I, I, there's I mean there's there's incredible stuff um, emerging in you know app, well, the app space has been it's not a new thing, but I think with AI and and with other emerging technologies with VR, which is something I'm very heavily involved in there's some very cool things coming out in terms of how people can access help. And I think young people will get access to that. You know, they will, they'll use those things more freely than, than, than probably we will. Um, mm. You know, they'll grow more familiar um, and they're already You know, how, how, how young people are being introduced to technology already at school. You know, it's just, it's just such a part of their, their lives.
0: I think that's a really important point. And, and, uh, it is so important for, for parents listening and for, for educators listening because in my game, and even I kind of started out like this many, many years ago, only talking about safety and the risks. But actually, now we're talking about technological advancement in mental health, uh, in diagnosis, as you, you know, in the management, even using virtual reality for kids with you know phobias and, and worries and so on. And I think it is important because kids also report. Hold on a second. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I'm not just using it to escape. You know that I can talk to my friend on Snapchat and tell them how I'm truly feeling. And I think the problem is we're painting a generation with one color. Like, uh, not not all of us, but many people are painting it that kids are um, only using it to escape, are somewhat lost, are addicted, all of these types of things. Whereas some of them have reported feeling really supported because, now here's the irony, because actually they can reach out to some people online when they're feeling a generational and technological divide with the adults. How's that for an irony? You know, that yeah. parents are going, not So it's so layered. I'm not saying one is right or one is wrong. I'm saying we've got to understand the the many layers of gray in between. And we've got to think about it a little bit more because tech, even social, may play a certain role for a certain child. And it may not for another child, depending on what they're dealing with and where they are. And the impossibility is trying to work out, well, which child should be uh, being using which type of platform to what degree and so on, where it would actually be something that's supportive. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. t- tell us about, just as an example, I mean, you and I have discussed this extensively. You helped me with this give us some examples of some great apps. I've got a program that mentions 17 apps, but I'm not going to talk about it. You are. We've mentioned, you know, the San Velo's and so on, and also talk about the VR. Give us some hope Hmm. about the power of tech and apps for mental health.
1: The power of tech. I mean, I just want to say we've got to check our assumptions about this as well. I mean, I'm at fault of doing this myself where, we think that that tech and uh, the advancements are dangerous I mean things we don 't fully understand we don 't have all the information about it is a natural human default to catastrophize it but to think sure this is this is bad or this is wrong. And I don't think you're completely right that we need to approach it open mindedly we don 't really know for sure yet. Um, I mean we need to explore the space i mean many years ago, one would have thought that watching horror movies and listening to heavy metal was a cause for violent behavior. I mean that data is sort of fairly out and it does not substantiate that at all. I mean I think it's quite a similar a similar thing when it comes to, you know, certain social media platforms and yeah, it can be harmful. I mean spending hours on it and it can be addictive. But totally agree with you. It is it is the nature of the world in which we live. It's with us and it does offer some pretty positive solutions and it and Young people do reach out to these places where they do find support. And it's a different way of socializing. I wouldn't say it's bad or it's less than or this is. We don't know that. I think it's just different. And it's different to how things were. And I think we need time to see how that plays out. Um, I mean, yeah, like VR. Uh, so VR, I mean, we thought it would be a lot, a lot further along than it is at the moment. I mean, at least I did a couple years back. You know, that there's going to be this massive change in in virtual solutions and the technology would drop in price. Um, I mean, it'll get there. I mean, I don't know if you've seen Apple's not, – I'm not, I'm not uh, advertising Apple. Yeah, well, I mean, I am, but I'm not. <laughs> you know, I love Apple's products. But, they, I mean, they're launching an incredible headset. We use a number of really fantastic technologies. I mean, the immersion in VR is incredible. Um, the graphics, the what you can do with it, the flexibility. It really allows us to provide people with experiences that are very difficult to simulate in, in what we call in vivo, in life. So I can help people with phobias. And fairly inexpensively, I mean, I can generate, uh, we call them assets, objects, uh, virtual objects, virtual situations, scenarios. Fairly inexpensively, and that's just going to get better and better, and we'll be able to reach more people much, much faster. Um, and I think it would allow young people to access situations and, and simulations, um, to provide them with, with mental health, uh, advice, um, um, experiences that can, you know, be facilitative, uh, you know, you know in things like anxiety disorders, OCD, et cetera. So I think it, it offers tremendous potential. I think we need to, You know, it's okay to be cautious. I think it's important to be cautious and, and, you know, being a bit critical of things, that's fine. But I don't think just write it off completely. Um, Mm I'm not saying everyone Mm -hmm. does that, but I mean, we have, we're at risk of doing that. And I think we have sometimes some, some of us do approach it that way. It's just, it's just terrible bad, bad. I'm going to ban it. Um, Look, I'm a little bit out of touch on the app space. I'm not using apps as much as I'm using VR. I mean, there's a, there are a couple of great apps um, out there. I mean, uh, the way I use apps, um, you know, they, they're mostly tracking behaviors, um, recording one's thoughts. Um, they're great little CBT cognitive behavior therapy tools. Um, there is a plethora of them. Um, I'm a very aware of the mindfulness apps, also boatloads of those. And there are some that are Super for young, for our young adults. Um, it's just a way to get them into the mindfulness practices, because it's pretty daunting and it can feel very boring initially as well. Um, mm. And it's meant to be not fun or, or boring <laughs> either. It's meant to be a, a, a process of concentration. But I mean, just get it to get a young person interested and started sometimes, and I'm generalizing here for sure, tricky. So, I think the app um, and gamification of certain things just provides that impetus and, and, uh, yeah, yeah, i
0: I think that is the challenge. You're right. Um, that over time, and, and this is why I talk about that kind of concentration level, the short form video that we've seen through shorts, reels, TikTok, all the kind of really short form stuff is that, you know, we, I mean, adults will say this themselves: that we we scroll we scroll through our feed like incredibly quickly and discern whether this is interesting or whether it's not interesting, and then we're trying to say, "Hold on, hold on, hold on." But the solution, one of the great solutions, is to try and sit still and to watch and observe your thoughts like clouds in the sky, and when uh, a, a thought comes it could be quite random and often is quite random it's a little bit like a bone and and your you, your mind is like a puppy it runs off to go and collect it analyze it think about it and so on and then brings it back and thinks more about it and you just want to go oh there's someone threw a bone there fantastic now the, as you say the, the most amazing thing is is that that's boring You know, and kids say, like, for example, I talked to them about the power of journaling. How would you be able to catch a feeling or a thought unless someone gave you confidential, private permission to write down anything that you were thinking, however crazy it was, saying, I promise you it's not crazy. You're not crazy. I've said that to kids. They say, but I have some wild thoughts. Kids come up at the end of our session and say, I've got some pretty wild thoughts. I was like, that's because you're human because your man collected a whole lot of stuff from the day or from a movie or from a social feed. You know, we've got a submarine that's at the bottom of the sea and nobody knows whether it imploded or how did they die. You know, this is what's happening at the moment. We had this discussion right now in in a, in my car this morning. Like, well, have they made it? And was that a terrible way to go? And then, you know, my little one had heard my older one talk about it. And then I could see that the thoughts were running through the mind. But what type of image is there? So... You know, what what is really difficult for us is that the thing that we really want kids to try and do, which is to be able to have a little bit of time to connect with themselves and with their thoughts and with their feelings and with their kind of semi-impulsive actions that they want to take – It's not that attractive as a concept. You know, who wants to sit down and write in a journal? Some people do, but you know, we suggest the Memento app and, and, and it's an amazing app. I still use, I've been using it for 10 years, but it's just not that attractive. Mm. What what, what, has there been any way in your experience? And I mean, you must have been doing this for well over 15 years, maybe more, 20. But what has been your experience in being able to get kids to trust and engage that this is so important? And I know that's a really difficult question because you must have kids who go in quite fearful of you, you mm. know, and they don't know what, mm. what, what you're about to talk to them about. How do you, how do you get them? This is for educators, school counselors and parents. How do you get them to understand the deep value? You mentioned a superpower. How do you, how do you do that?
1: Definitely. I mean, a young child coming to see me, there's sometimes suspicion. Some, some, some young people are quite actually keen. They're quite keen, not necessarily the mindfulness, but they're keen to come through. They sort of want to look at their thoughts that are in their mind and exactly what you're saying. Like, sure, is this normal? Is this okay? Is it all right to feel this way? Uh, which is, which is great. I mean, that's really super. I have young people who come to see me and they come to see me because mom and dad told them, you got to go see this guy, this adult, and he's kind of a bit boring. And then when he talks about really difficult stuff, I don't want to be there. I don't want to do exposure therapy. I don't want to expose myself to uncomfortable things. It makes me feel worse. Sure, how is this guy going to help me? Anyway, so it, it look, I'm in a lucky situation where I have some time with young people to collaborate, join, build rapport, Help them to understand their mind. Help them to understand the behaviours. What's really going on? And I think in doing that, introducing them to mindfulness is easier. I mean, I sort of did that with my son. So, you know, he 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 sees like, okay, dad is meditating. He's sitting on this pillow. He's kind of sitting still. I talked to him about it, and and yeah, he did say, yeah, oh, well, that is boring. Or like, what are you doing? So I'm like, well, yeah, okay, you like Star Wars. This is Jedi stuff. Okay, (laughs) Let's give it a, you know, it's finding a bit of an angle. And I think you have to do that. Look, he's eight years old. So your angle's got to be, to use psychology speak, developmentally appropriate. I mean, you've got to pitch it at your young person's level. I mean, I think if you go too low, go too high, cheers, you've lost them. But with him, it's just starting small. It's sort of, well, you know, there are benefits in doing this. Why don't you just give it a try? You know, encourage some openness. The thing you've got to have a lot of patience as a parent. Um, and now I know I'm giving parent advice and there's no one size fits all. And you can take just take this with a pinch of salt because, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try anyway. I mean, you're going to lose some. You're going to win some. Just keep at it. You know, with him, he did a little bit with me and then he was like, nah, I'm not going to do it anymore. It's, it is boring and I'm not going to sit down. I'd rather play Lego and do some other stuff. But I mean, fine. Let's just do two minutes. I mean, I created a bit of a boundary around it. You know, I incentivized it. I mean, it did gamify it a little bit. I don't think point systems work for him. You know, if you give him a point, a little tick on a chart and a star or whatever else to do. And that's also not how I want to approach. But if that's the way you want to do it, that's fine. But it was more giving options on time, talking about the benefits and using kind of metaphors to get him in. Look, it's going to be challenging so he, he now does it, I wouldn't say regularly, but he does it fairly often and he's okay. He's okay to do it. I think he, he knows it's part of the routine. And I think that's kind of how we want to pitch it.
0: And I mean, with older kids, like say with the teens, cause that's also, I mean, exactly what you said. Pitching it at their level is so important for teens to try and explain to them stuff about social media. We created the world's first social media current affairs video show. We took, we have got a social media news show so that it can be shown in schools. And I'm not in it anymore because it needed to have younger people exactly pitching it at the right level. Our presenters are 18 years old. With teens, they're more cautious. They're more cynical. uh, They're more, probably more scared and more vulnerable. How does one try? And I think to some degree, perhaps with the nature of those thoughts, some of them are a little bit, I, I don't know, but more at risk. You know, if I look at, you know, how some of them have really found themselves in really dark corners, how do you do that with somebody who walks in who's like 15, 16, 17? Say, for example, how do you do that?
1: That's a great question. I think it's very difficult to answer. I think. With teens, uh peer sort of relations are incredibly important. You're 13, 14 year old. I think if there's a young person that does mindfulness and they're into it and they enjoy it and they have some social influence, super powerful mm. because that person's more likely to encourage their mates to do it, to kind of do mindfulness. It's exactly what you're saying. I think if mom and dad is doing it, boring, do I, should I do it? I mean, there is, again, generalization, but there's that natural propensity to sort of shirk authority a little bit, and push back against it. So if this is kind of what these adults are telling me to do, and especially something like mindfulness, which isn't easy. I think the other aspects of mindfulness which may be more interesting are the embodiment practices, things like yoga or embodied work. So mindfulness does not just have to be what we call formalized meditation, sitting like a Buddha or sitting down on your pillow, focusing on your breath, It could involve movement. One can cut up the time. You can do what we call like body scans or watching thoughts. So try to make it interesting. Mm. There are apps that gamify it. I'm not sure that's the best approach because in time, you know, mindfulness isn't about sort of a goal. It's not about getting something necessarily. I guess if that's the initial strategy, cool. You know, you can go from there to what it's really about. And what it's really about, it is a concentration practice. It's a cognitive skill.
0: You keep using the word concentration, which is just so fascinating because in our surveys, we do anonymous surveys, so we don't know anything about age or no name, no, but we, just, we send it to the school so it doesn't even come from us. But they take the feedback from students. And that is telling us that uh, repeatedly that mental health is the number one of the eight lessons that we offer. And number two is attention and focus. You're talking about concentration. Uh, And the other versions are sexuality online, just in case you want to wonder what that's compared to, privacy, setting up your device, cyber security, external hacks, everything from digital footprint, you know, what are the digital tattoos that you have out there, exploration and excellence, what's all the new tech, Mental health and attention and focus Trump set, and I find trump's all of those, and I find that so interesting because there is some component of a desire to understand and be able to regulate and uh, you know just have a little bit more control, but I'm not sure if everybody mm. the people are filling in the survey to truly understand that correlation, you know, like I want mental health, you know, or I want better concentration and focus. But you don't sit down and say, well, you know, if you really want it, like, would you be willing to would you be willing to invest you know 5 minutes mm. a day and every, everyone would go no i wouldn't <laughs> it's boring and 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 here it's kind of fields where that friction where that rub is that's really difficult and i think that's one of the great difficulties for for parents and even for schools schools are a little bit nervous about saying that this is something that's important despite the fact that a lot of surveys have shown that you know it helps with focus and increasing even exam marks but I just think that they don't want to fully accept that this might be this boring thing is this incredible solution because this is how minds work. Um, I just wondered what you thought of that. You know, this kind of mm. terrible, how do we explain this uh, scenario?
1: Yeah, working on your mental health isn't fun always. Um, it's yeah. actually sometimes the complete opposite. And it's something that. We do want to encourage you know if we're just seeking good things nice pleasurable activities and we just want to be happy we don't want to feel bad and sad or uncomfortable that's one that's not a great way to sort of live our lives you know we want to have meaning we want to have purpose we want to be kind of aligned with our values yeah i mean doing that stuff isn't isn't always fun so it is a bit of the crux <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's the challenge i have when i'm setting homework Or I'm trying to get young people to kind of take the skills and approaches outside of the the therapy room. Like, how do you take this back into your life? A lot of people get it, though. They do get it. They kind of click and they're like, hmm, okay, that does make sense. You know, I'm I'm just kind of wanting to hit these feel-good buttons. You know, the little dopamine switches. I'm kind of like on this because, yeah, it makes me feel good. But actually, you know what? I do get it. I don't – it doesn't live well. Like, I'm kind of like escaping, this other stuff in my life. And I always thought that that was bad. Like I always thought my, like you're saying earlier, my thoughts are bad. Like somehow I shouldn't be having those. And then they realize we, we use the word normalized, which is a weird word because whatever normalized, I mean, whatever that means, but it just means that it's okay. It's okay to have discomfort. And we talk about leaning in and that's what the young, you know, young people, adults, whatever, whoever I see, they do understand that leaning in is Actually good for me. It doesn't have to feel good, but it allows me to connect with people where it's difficult when I do that. I actually end up feeling fulfilled when I do that. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not just about let me escape to tech. And I don't think technology has to be about that either. I think, you know, it can be part of this greater milieu as well in terms of like, how am I going to live my life? Yeah, I've got tech. It can enable me to do that better. It can enable me to Define my values. Define what I want from life, and I can use it in in this kind of advantageous way, but not in a way that helps me escape or get rid of emotions, because it's not going to do that anyway. And it seems hard, and yet it's going to be resistance and kind of a pushback. But I think if it's educated, if it's understood, and a young person knows like this is what it's really about, you know, I can't just escape this stuff, and I shouldn't have to. It makes sense. I think. Having that knowledge is knowledge. So having that knowledge is the impetus for, you know, effective behaviour, a good life. Yeah, Yeah.
0: and I suppose I'll come to my final question for you. But I mean, I I really appreciate that you said that because we are pro tech, but we're also pro well-being, pro regulation, pro choice. You know, all of these things, and that's what we're trying to get. We don't want schools to think it's either A or B. It's either kids are safe or, or not safe. It's actually all sorts of things. It's privacy and security and mental well-being and concentration and so on. And it's layered and it requires time and practice. Final question. How do parents approach, now this is irrespective of tech or not, what do we really need to know about, you know, how would we know if our kids are struggling and what should we do Next. I think a lot of stuff is very invisible and what worries me, and I've seen examples of this is kids have gone too far down the rabbit hole and they're in a really troublesome corner within themselves. It's very difficult to see, particularly with adolescents. Mm. What, what, what are any of the warning signs and what would you do? What What is your
1: suggestion that they do? Ah, oh, For sure. I mean, you want to encourage open communication and have parents just trust the intuition. You know, if you, have a sense something's not okay, try approach your young person. You know, teenagers are going to be different to children. You know, your 12, 13, 14-year-old is going to be different to your 8, 9-year-old in terms of how you approach this. But, you know, and be curious. I think if you worry they're doing something which is like sexting, uh, you know, some parents get angry at that. They approach and they're sort of, why are you doing this? You know, that's going to create this shutdown in the child or the young person, and they're going to be less less likely to open up to it. So just check your own emotions and how you feel about it. Sometimes we don't fully understand it as well. I think curiosity means just sort of checking one's own emotions, like what is the right approach here, rather try encourage communication and openness, and then apply, you know, as a parent, to apply your own boundaries and values on that. Try to talk that through with the young person, like why you feel it may not be okay. I think seeking counsel and guidance, because as parents, when it comes to tech, there's a lot that parents are still very unsure about. So I think getting some other help out there, super, super essential. There's a plethora of stuff to look out for. I mean, it's difficult to distill it down to, you know, a, a number of um sort of, behavioral patterns or points to look out for in young people. And it's it's very idiosyncratic. I mean, young people have their own ways of demonstrating their distress. I mean, from withdrawal, becoming silent. I mean, you'll often read in different pamphlets and mental health guides that there's change in behavior. That's super difficult to track because developmentally, there's change in behavior. In any case, hormone changes, difficulty with peers, but still, you know, open communication, just approach it. Try keep that contact going, you know, as as overwhelmed as modern parents can be, you know, we're busy with our work, tired, et cetera. Sometimes it feels really effortful to try to break open that communication, but really like keep it going. When it comes to tech, I mean, one thing I've noticed is a lot of young people don't feel that their parents understand, like they're gaming and how that works for them. And even some social media I'm going to call that processes, you know, how that plays out. And they don't feel they can chat to their folks about that. Mm-hmm. So I think if that is the case for you, again, I mean, try to do some research. Try approach it. We, we use the word Socratically. Again, that's curious. Ask questions. It's okay if you don't know, because sometimes I've found parents, they kind of feel they have to know, like they need to have that authoritative position. You know, I'm, I'm kind of older. I must know. And if I don't, I'm just going to check out. I look like an idiot if I don't know. No, you don't. It's okay not to know. You know, it's okay to sort of be uncertain because you're going to keep that open with your child. They can, our children are sometimes our best teachers. Mm, and I mean right, that on this stuff, totally but I okay. also mean that emotionally. I mean, there's just so much we have to learn.
0: I really agree. And I mean, I think that's, that is amazing. This idea of checking ourselves in terms of how we might react, checking ourselves about how much we don't know, then checking ourselves about whether we could indeed, because we do spend a lot of time online ourselves, whether it be for work or whether it be on social media, using a little bit of that time to just use either Google or online to search for the right uh, influence, positive influence that can talk to us. You know, people like us that will be talking about these topics. That you just need to follow it as much as you're going to follow the tennis or soccer, or yeah. you know, just throw it into your feed. And I think that's really important because what we're talking about here is we're talking about safety, actual physical safety, but we're also talking about emotional safety and security. But what we're always talking about is that is the springboard to exploration and excellence. If you're not really operating well, you don't feel safe, you're struggling with all sorts of things. How easy is that to, to kind of bolster out into the world with a really solid root system? It, it's tricky. So parents don't realize that this, this work is going to pay its dividends for, for decades on. And so just to be able to spot these things. And to check themselves and go, wow, there's, there's a bit more that I've got to do. And I think it's really hard for parents. I, you know, this is my parting shot. I think it's hard. I think teachers and schools are feeling exhausted. And I think that parents are feeling exhausted too. Is that a knock on your door? You, somebody's waiting for you for there's an appointment coming. Am I correct?
1: Yeah. But although that How- had to tell them not to disturb this. But <laughs> no, that's all right. No, that's all good. You yeah. hop off. I'll close yeah, probably up. Probably saying something. Uh, very Gina's quickly, David. Is, is, is
0: yeah. there any website you that's want awesome. anybody to go and look at of your of your uh, information? Is there anything you want them to look at? Uh, you know,
1: I mean, I hate Behavior Therapy. But I mean, I don't have to self promote. It's cool. I mean, you guys can cut this part out of the out of the okay, chat. No, 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 no. no, no cool. It's all good. Uh, my social life is fantastic. Oh, <laughs> take a look at that stop it now
0: okay listen i'll let you go i can see that knock on the door you go for it and i'll close all right.
1: up thanks David. lovely man take care okay. all the
0: best okay Cheers thank God. you Bye. and so therein ends uh, another episode of z alpha we will be back with another episode, but I must say, I mean, that, as Dr. David Rosenstein says, he doesn't need to self-promote. Uh, he is incredibly busy, but he really is an icon in looking after teens and preteens with anxiety disorders uh, specifically. And he's been, he was probably one of the key influencers in me starting this business beyond five years ago. So many thanks to him and the team at Cape Behavioral Therapy, and we look forward to coming back uh, with another awesome uh, podcast thank you very much zach lee's and solid gold podcast you guys are totally awesome i really appreciate both of you make me look like i know what i'm doing over and out uh this is it from z alpha we shall see you soon you've been listening to another production from solid gold podcasts